0: I'm just going to be blunt with it.
1: Please. No, this is amazing. Um, And what do you think this election could mean
2: for Wisconsin? Oh, shit, it's everything. Yeah, with us being a swing state, um, I I definitely believe that all eyes are on us. Yeah, I'm not even sure where to begin. Freedoms, the economy and freedoms. I would say definitely education is key. Um, Mm -hmm. Education and prison reform um, is two things, but uh, I believe that they go hand in hand.
1: Not defunding the police department.
0: Gay rights, trans rights, and um, minority protection. Actually, sometimes I think, is this all we have in this country? Is these two people? I don't, I don't know, that sounds awful. Yeah,
3: I
2: don't want Trump or Biden winning. What's going to happen? I have, a, I have a young family, you know? What's going to happen as they're growing up over the next, you know, four years? Where does the power lie?
4: Four years after Donald Trump's upset victory, America has elected a new president. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. will be the 46th president of the United States. The vice president-elect, Kamala Harris, will make history as the first woman and first person of color to hold the position. But as with most things in 2020, election night was not standard fare. The Trump campaign held off advances from the Democrats in Florida, North Carolina, Texas, and Ohio it became clear that this election, once again, would come down to the fabled blue wall.
3: Biden now is gonna have to take, it looks like some of this potentially, some of this Midwest path to the White House we were talking about. Would it come down to that? It's starting to look like it might.
0: This is their blue wall path through the Midwest to
3: the presidency. And that's where the Biden campaign had been focusing so much of its attention. If Biden wins these three, if he wins Wisconsin, if he wins Michigan, if he wins Pennsylvania, That would put him over 270.
4: All eyes were on Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania as many Americans began a fitful night's sleep or poured another cup of coffee. And in the wee hours of the morning, results finally started to come in from Wisconsin. We begin with breaking news out of the Badger State. CBS News is projecting Wisconsin to flip for Joe Biden. As was the case in 2016, the polls were inconsistent this year. While the overall electoral map may end up squarely within the projected results, the margins in these states were not the convincing five to six point win projected for Biden. As of taping, in Pennsylvania, the last of the blue wall states to be called for Biden, he leads by about 46,000 votes. In Michigan, which was called for Biden a day after the election, he leads by nearly 150,000 votes. And in Wisconsin, Biden secured a victory with just 20,000 votes. Biden recapturing the upper Midwest is a decisive victory for the Democrats, but the close margins in these states, and particularly in Wisconsin, tell a more complex story. One that highlights and reinforces the tensions still at play in American politics. From Wonder Media Network, I'm Grace Lynch, and this is our final episode of Winning Wisconsin. The story of one state fighting for its own political identity with national implications. Over the last week, I've reached out to many of the voices you've heard throughout this series to get a sense of what happened in Wisconsin on election night. The last time I spoke with Matt Moreno, chair of the Waukesha Dems, he was fighting the institutionalized republicanism of the Milwaukee suburbs. I asked him how it felt on election night to have the nation's attention so laser-focused on Wisconsin.
2: We expected it to always be all as wisconsin because we know the White House runs through Wisconsin. You couldn't get to 270 without Wisconsin. We're kind of that neck-and-neck bellwether.
4: Perhaps even more specifically, the path to the White House ran through Dane County. Dane County is home to Madison, Wisconsin, the state capital and second largest city. Here's another familiar voice, Charlie Sykes, the former conservative talk radio host in Wisconsin. If you caught any cable news coverage over the last week, you probably saw him on MSNBC.
3: One of the big ones was the massive vote out of Dane County. Uh, You really cannot tell the story of what happened in Wisconsin without looking at those numbers. Uh, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I think that Joe Biden got a margin of about 181,000 votes out of one county in Wisconsin. Now that's a a 35,000 vote increase in the margin over Hillary Clinton. So he picked up 35,000 votes in a state he only won by 20,000. So you take out Dane County, if Dane County had done just what it did four years ago, Donald Trump would have won the state again. The amazing thing about that was that Dane County's vote was amazingly high four years ago. So that was uh, a, you know, a genuinely uh, epic turnout.
4: Charlie may not have had the numbers right in front of him, but he got them exactly right. This year, 89% of registered voters turned out in Dane County. That's crazy high. And those votes buoyed the Biden campaign. Outside of Dane County, Democrats made inroads in another closely watched area, the Wow Counties. As a reminder, the Wow Counties consist of Washington, Ozaki, and Waukesha County. They're the lifeblood of the Republican Party in the state and some of the most reliably conservative counties in the upper Midwest. But Democrats have been picking off these voters, particularly suburban women, since Trump's election. Here's Matt Moreno again.
2: So we had record performance. In Waukesha, we turned out uh, 38.8% for Joe Biden, and Donald Trump got roughly 59.8%. It was the first time that a Republican has been held under 60% in Waukesha without a strong third-party candidate like Russ Perot on the ballot since the 80s. So for us, it was monumental. Joe Biden got 105,000 Democratic votes, which is just a huge number. And it really cut into the margins that Donald Trump needed to win in such a close race.
4: Next door, Ozaki County saw a slightly bigger shift. Biden received 43 percent of the vote, a six-point increase from Clinton's 2016 numbers. This is a huge change to the fabric of these communities. But are these swings to the left here to stay?
2: There is a lot of underlying information that's showing me that this is a long-term trend but I would expect a slight regression in the next you know, election or two where maybe we don't get as close to 40, but we're still gonna be moving away from that low 30s that we have been kind of shown to be long-term because there is a longer, longer-term longer shift in play here. And I think the Republican Party's response to this election the next two years will, will determine a lot of what we see in Waukesha and the wild counties because if they double down on this Trump-style politics, which it looks like they kind of already are, given how Trump is handling these last few days he has in office and what the Republican Party infrastructure is doing, which is really nothing, it's going to continue to push away these voters who maybe voted for Biden because they hated Trump, but vote a Republican down ticket. So they might start to see faster that the Republican Party really is toxic from the head of the fish all the way down.
4: Overall. The erosion into the wow counties amounted to about 8,000 fewer votes for the Republicans. Eating into Republican margins in the suburbs and record turnout numbers in Madison should be a recipe for success for the Democrats, right? So why is it that Joe Biden only captured the state by 20,000 votes, a slightly slimmer margin than Trump's victory in the state four years prior? Well, as we saw across the country, this wasn't an overwhelming blue wave election. While Biden is on the cusp of receiving the same Electoral College victory as Trump did in 2016, the Democrats' chance of taking the Senate winnowed to two runoff elections in Georgia. The Democratic majority in the House shrank, and the party failed to win control of key state legislatures ahead of a crucial redistricting year. Some of those failures bled into Wisconsin. Despite immense effort, turnout in Milwaukee was the same as 2016. There is a caveat here that Milwaukee County, which includes the suburbs most closely tied to the city, showed an increase in turnout, which buoyed the overall vote share for the Democrats. And Milwaukee still had its dramatic moment of bolstering Biden's vote total as their absentee ballots were the last to be tallied. But the overwhelming show of Democratic force that happened in Dane County was not reflected in Milwaukee, which means many of these voters continue to be disengaged in the process, which long-term, is a problem for Democrats. Another reason this election was so close is because Trump performed even better than before in many rural communities. In 2016, Trump flipped 23 of Wisconsin's 72 counties. This year, only two flipped back to blue. Many counties, particularly those that are more populous, like Green Bay's Brown County, went for the Republican Party by slightly smaller margins than in 2016. But the more rural areas of the state became Trumpier, which is really saying something because 2016 saw record performance for the Republicans in these areas. Of the 58 counties carried a second time by Trump, in more than a dozen, he improved his margins by over three points. Still, due to the size of these counties, there wasn't an overwhelming vote total to be gained as a result. One of those pivot counties, that voted for Obama twice before swinging to Trump is Columbia County. Columbia County is where Sarah Lloyd lives, our dairy farmer and food systems expert from episode three. When I interviewed Sarah last, she was pretty confident that Columbia County would go blue this year. In the end, it didn't, but it was close. Trump carried the county by about one and a half points, slightly down from his two point win in the county four years ago. I caught up with Sarah and asked how she felt about her county's results.
1: My thought when we talked last was that there would be good Biden enthusiasm and there would be dampened enthusiasm for Trump. And so that would be that, you know, he would still have his supporters, but, you know, we would see the county go back blue, which it had been for many years. I was wrong. I mean, I was surprised by the, the enthusiasm of the Trump supporters. Uh, and I, I think we saw that generally across the rural areas.
4: This was an election where turnout and persuasion were required. The Democrats turned out their base of support in urban centers, and their persuasion of suburban voters was significant. But that same persuasion didn't work in rural Wisconsin, where turnout for Trump was at record levels. Sarah had some thoughts on why that might have been the case.
1: I don't think the Democratic Party has done a good job messaging what it's offering to the agricultural community. You know, Trump has come up strong with this idea that he's a disruptor in the export markets because a lot of people feel like those haven't been treating farmers very well And he certainly disrupted them. And even if it hit people in the chin when they lost those markets or they saw downturns, he got to say that, well, I told you I was going to be a tough guy and I was going to be a disruptor. So he did. And people said, oh, well, he did what he said. That's great. You know, I want to be able to say, yeah, Democrats support family farmers and rural communities. But we're not doing that because we're not offering people policies. We don't have evidence in the actions that the people are taking once they get elected, like actually dealing with monopoly power in the ag sector, actually building up an agricultural economy. That's not just dominated by global export markets, you know, those kind of things that we could do and we could show like real results to people.
4: In the final days before the election, Dan Kaufman, author of The Fall of Wisconsin, published a new piece in The New Yorker that focused on working-class voters in the Rust Belt. He wasn't too surprised that the Biden campaign had struggled to reach these voters.
0: Biden's campaign centered around a kind of centrist messaging that didn't really engage economic questions very forcefully, what you saw in the rural areas was a kind of seeding of that ground like the Democrats have been doing for a long time. I mean, his campaign was centered around restoring dignity to the White House. It was not what I would call an economic populist campaign. I think people underappreciate that more than like liberal conservative, I think Wisconsin responds to economic populism Unfortunately, the right-wing version has been predominant because the Democrats have ceded that. And the reason that that is important is there is an anger that's rooted in an economic malaise and an economic insecurity that's profound. One side is saying we need to restore dignity to the White House. The other side is proclaiming that they have rescued and will rescue manufacturing jobs, showering money on farmers, what I, what I mean to say is that none of the, the false promises, the broken promises that Trump campaigned on were really forcefully challenged.
4: There's data to back up Dan's assessment. Polls regularly cited that voters felt Trump was stronger on the economy than Biden. That was also borne out in early exit poll data from Edison Research, which showed that 85 percent of Wisconsinites who identified the economy as their top issue voted for Trump. A note of caution, the exit polls should be taken with a hefty grain of salt this soon after the election, but this data feels pretty consistent with previous trends. Dan sees a clear connection between an economic message and Wisconsin's election margins.
0: Look at the three elections that were decided within 1%. Michael Dukakis, Al Gore, Kerry was 5,000 votes, Trump was 20,000 votes, and Biden was 20,000 votes. I think the reason is right-wing populism has a ceiling, and none of those people represented a left-leaning populism. Look at the exception. Barack Obama in 2008, 14-point victory, in the midst of the financial crash. Didn't deliver, but had the the good fortune to run against Mitt Romney, who was easily cast as a Richie Rich type, Bain Capital. He said, let Detroit go bankrupt. And look at what Obama did. He centered his re-election campaign around the bailout of the auto industry. Very smart.
4: As far as Dan's concerned, we're going to keep seeing this trend happen if Democrats don't reorient to a more economics-based message. In his mind, the Republican Party is only gonna replicate this with a new messenger in place of Donald Trump.
0: You know, there's a cliche, right? Working class voters that vote for the Republican Party are voting against their interests. It's true to a degree, but it is not really categorically true anymore. It hasn't been for some time. When you look at the free trade deals and how that has, I mean, those were championed by both parties. That is part of the appeal of Trump. And liberals deluded themselves by thinking that his entire appeal was based on racism, sexism, and xenophobia. It was just, it just was never that simple. Is that a part of it? Sure. Absolutely. But I would argue that it's a frustrated, in my opinion, misdirected working class anger that got behind Trump. And I can see Trumpism flourishing with a smoother, less, you know, grotesque practitioner. They will refine this philosophy, this strategy, and, and it could be incredibly successful against a weak, tepid centrism that is not focused. It would overwhelm it, because there aren't that many votes there. Biden got virtually no Republicans. You know, that, all that effort and, and aligning himself with Bill Crystal and all these people, Lincoln Project, they did nothing. That is not where the votes are. That's a very, very small percentage of people that are willing to cross. They're gonna, people are gonna vote their class interests And unfortunately, they have been convinced that Trump represents them. And that is partly, I would argue, a failure of the Democratic Party to represent their class interests.
4: One of the things we saw very clearly play out last week is the fact that Republican voters stuck with Trump. Despite groups like the Lincoln Project or Republican Voters Against Trump, he won a larger share of Republican voters this year than in 2016. And he expanded his base. Voters of color, particularly black voters, overwhelmingly supported Biden. And yet, while exit poll data is not yet definitive, Trump looks to have improved his margins with voters of color. The election was not seen as a repudiation of the Republican Party at all. Aside from the president, it was actually a really good night for most other down-ballot Republicans. Many of the president's most ardent defenders cruised to reelection in races previously thought competitive. The Democrats lost nearly every toss-up House race. It's been long debated whether Donald Trump's virulent approach to politics was an aberration, as Joe Biden has called it, or a symptom of a much more pervasive movement in America. With the results as they stand from this election, I think we can formally lay that debate to rest. Donald Trump was not an aberration. While he may have lost the White House, Members of Congress and state legislatures across the country still carry the Trump mantle. But what happens to a party that's remade itself in its leader's image once that leader is gone? What does Trumpism look like without President Trump?
3: Some of us would have liked to have seen a more thorough rejection of Trumpism written branch. And the question is, you know, what does Trumpism look like or feel like without Donald Trump? A lot of this is not transferable. The corruption, the lying, the narcissism, don't try that at home. I'm not sure who else is going to be able to pull that off. So there are certain issues that I think will carry over. But Trumpism without Donald Trump is a big question mark.
4: That's Charlie Sykes again. Charlie spent decades promoting conservative policies before becoming one of the key voices of the Never Trump movement. Here's how he feels about watching his Republican peers embrace Trump once again.
3: Oh, pretty much on an island. I'm, I'm out in the wilderness. I mean, I, I knew when I didn't support Trump four years ago that I would be in the wilderness. I didn't think it would be quite as small a desert island as it turned out to be.
4: Charlie, however, was quick to point out that there are signs of some like-minded voters in Wisconsin.
3: I was looking at some numbers from southeastern Wisconsin, showing the number of people that voted for Republicans for Congress versus Trump and in this 6 county area about 24,000 people voted for their Republican candidate for Congress but did not vote for Donald Trump. Now that number is larger than the statewide average. I mean the, the statewide margin. So that would that would suggest that in this 6 county region there were at least 24,000 Republican voters who were not going to support Donald Trump. So we may be a small group of people but You know, um, among the numbers, if you're looking at why did Donald Trump not win, if you lose 24,000 votes in those six counties and then you lose the state by 20,000 votes, that's a factor.
4: So, yes, perhaps some Wisconsinites like Charlie rejected the president, but not the party. But Charlie fears that that's not enough, that without an overwhelming repudiation, the Republican Party he once knew may be gone for good.
3: And I'm afraid that because of the results of the election, they won't go through the process of introspection that they might have, had the defeat been deeper. After 2012, the party had an autopsy. It was able to look into the mirror and say, what did we do wrong? How do we have to change ourselves? And because the guy who was in charge of that was a Wisconsinite. It was Reince Priebus, who was the chairman of the party. And Reince, like so many other Wisconsin Republicans, has gone from you know, being the guy who said we need to change our approach to minorities and women and we need to modernize our party to be becoming a complete, you know, Trump defender. Which again is also part of the irony. But I don't see that there's going to be that kind of come to Jesus moment for the party. Because they held the Senate, because they increased their numbers in the legislatures and in the House of Representatives. I think that it's less likely that they're going to engage in this uh, soul searching. Uh, where did we go wrong? I think they're feeling, eh, we're, we're okay now. We don't have to defend the tweets anymore. But otherwise, in about five minutes, we'll pretend to care about fiscal conservatism again.
4: I guess I wonder how that makes you feel. <laughs> Which is, seems like a silly question, but that's I'm genuinely curious.
3: Well, the whole uh, last four years has been um, very disillusioning. It's been eye-opening to realize that many of the people that you thought you knew that you didn't know that well, let's say their adherence to principle was a little bit shakier than you perhaps would have would have would have thought. So it is it's it's been a I've described it as a disillusioning and soul crushing experience. And, you know, I've been out. I've been in a political orphan since 2016, and I think I'm going to be a political orphan for a while longer.
4: And while Charlie may be feeling like a political orphan the rest of the Republican Party continues to rally around Trump, even as he works to cast doubt on the legitimacy of an election that on the whole was pretty successful for other Republicans. One example of that continued allegiance hit really close to home for Charlie. Former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker waded into the political discourse right after Wisconsin's 10 electoral votes were awarded to Joe Biden.
3: Remember, Scott Walker ran for president and was highly critical of Donald Trump. In, in fact, when he dropped out of the presidential race, he urged other people to drop out so that they could stop Donald Trump. In the time since then, he's become very Trumpy. But in the last 24 hours, I think you saw the pattern. When the results came out, there was some question about whether or not Trump was going to ask for a recount, which I assume that he's going to. And Walker tweeted out the numbers, basically said, look. Um, you're not gonna move that many votes. We did this four years ago and it changed 300 votes. We did it a few years before that, changed about 100 votes. So you're not gonna change the results of an election that was lost by 20,000 votes. So he put that out. And apparently he got blowback from Trump world because he spent the rest of the day going, well, wait, 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 maybe you should do a, a recount. And this morning he has a column in the Washington Times saying, yes, absolutely, Trump should be gearing up to do a recount in Wisconsin. So it was, for whatever reason, he felt the need to back off from his original comment to show his loyalty, because, you know, there are litmus tests for loyalty in Trump world. And right now, apparently, one of the big litmus tests is you have to be all in in not accepting the results of this election. And the irony, of course, for Walker is he lost in 2018 by 20,000 votes or so. He did not ask for a recount. Even as Trump goes down, how many of them feel the need to show their loyalty by going along with the conspiracy theories or the baseless speculation about the election, you know, baseless allegations of fraud.
4: While these baseless allegations of fraud stand little chance to genuinely change the election's outcome, they contribute to a decay of our democratic process. Sarah has had to deal with the doubt it sows firsthand.
1: You know, I had somebody contact me yesterday. We were talking about something else, and then they just said, you know, I'm so concerned about all this fraud that was in the election. And I said, well, there's no evidence of that. There isn't any evidence of that. And this is someone that I feel like is pretty discerning in like, they're, you know, normally, when I talk with them, I feel like they're pretty discerning. So then you think, wow, so that was, that's been a super effective message. And so I think, understanding the way that these messages can be so pervasive that when they're outright lies that is i mean that's the downfall that's when democracies start failing you know if you read your history like if if you can't if no one can believe if there's no shared sense of reality then how do you even deal with that
4: that's one of the biggest questions this election has left us with. How do we grapple with the fact that the country is split fairly evenly, with two very different understandings of reality? And how do you navigate that when you live in a state like Wisconsin, where the state itself is split nearly 50-50? To Charlie, the objective is the same. The battle lines are just more clearly drawn.
3: It feels sharper. It feels like the, it, it's the same pattern, but with sharper edges. In Wisconsin, it is it has come down to, you know, what is Dane County? If you're a Democrat, what is Dane County going to turn out? and What is Milwaukee County going to turn out? And that's that's become the battlefield. So in other words, the battlefield is not what are the swing areas or who are the undecided voters? It's base against base, hard against hard. So, no, we're definitely purple when you see these margins of 20 of 20,000 votes. I don't think that that's going to change at at, at all. So I, th- I think going forward, you're going to continue to see, you're going to continue to see that. But when I say purple, it's, purple implies some sort of a blending. You just have these sharp red, blue lines that, that are going to be there. And so it becomes very, very unpredictable.
4: Sarah rejects that perspective. Columbia County itself was decided by just over one point. I went through their precinct data for the county and nearly every single one was split down the middle for Biden and Trump. She sees it as deeply purple.
1: Well, and I think the reality is, is like, I'm operating where I'm interacting with people that don't vote in the same way that I do every single day. I think my husband, even more, is a farmer. I mean, we've got the hoof trimmer and the cow pregnancy checker person on the farm. We've got the guy that comes and breeds the cows every day. I mean, my husband comes home every night and talks to me about these sort of intense political conversations that he's having with these people on a daily basis. And they do not agree at all, but they have to work with each other. They're in economic transactions with each other um, as business people. And that's sometimes the thing that I think about the rural areas is that we, we don't have as many people so we can't self-sort ourselves into these kind of political enclaves and in some ways maybe that's a healthier thing.
4: Wisconsin's next political battle is already coming into focus. Here's Matt.
2: Wisconsin is going to be once again ground zero in 2022 with a gubernatorial race, uh Senator Ron Johnson's up for re-election, so We have dubbed him America's worst senator, so we are excited. We are expecting a large crop of candidates to come out and have an awesome primary where we're going to have Democrats crisscrossing Wisconsin for months on end talking about Democratic policies and talking about what Ron Johnson has done to the state. It's just it kind of never ends here in Wisconsin.
4: Charlie, similarly, is preparing for a challenging future in Wisconsin politics.
3: I don't think we're in for a period of uh, of good boring politics in Wisconsin. I, I think the one thing that makes me optimistic about Wisconsin is that the people here are much more decent than our politics suggests sometimes. Maybe the Wisconsin nice is overstated, but it's a real thing. I mean, I, I think that there's a culture in Wisconsin that may, may make us, that may get us through this better than some of the other areas that that these political divisions of who we vote for every two years don't necessarily reflect the way we live our lives. So that's where I would, I would be more hopeful.
4: When I set out to make this show, I knew that as the tipping point state, Wisconsin was emblematic of the 2016 election. This election, it played a huge role in the national narrative once again. Its narrow swing for Biden the morning after election night set a new tone for his campaign and signaled the eventual realignment of the decisive blue wall for the Democrats. Biden's win in Wisconsin remains one of the slimmest. With results still coming in, only Georgia and Arizona, the new Sunbelt pickups for the Democrats, show thinner margins for Biden and Harris. And as of Sunday night, Vox is predicting that once all the votes are tallied, Wisconsin will once again be the tipping point state in this election. But there's more to it than that. After hours consuming dairy profitability reports, local election archives, labor data, racial inequality studies, and thorough state histories, plus an invaluable subscription to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and countless hours of interviews, I grew to understand Wisconsin as a microcosm of so much more than the country's presidential elections. In so many ways, it is emblematic of our core issues around economic and racial inequality, the tribal partisanship and divisive politics that have become iconic of the last two decades, all bottled up in one state that split almost exactly 50 50 politically. So while America's Dairyland may have swung for the Democrats this time around, I don't see how either Democrats or Republicans could feel like it's reliably in their camp. The ambition of winning Wisconsin is poised to take center stage in our elections for years to come. Perhaps that shouldn't be so surprising. After all, Wisconsin has been called the laboratory of democracy. And what is our country going through right now if not a massive experiment on the durability and persistence of the norms and institutions that make up our democratic system? In a way, Wisconsin is the natural arena for these tensions to play out. The state motto for Wisconsin is forward, which I find remarkably fitting for such a bellwether state. And as with the conclusion of every election cycle, the country is now looking forward. Forward to what the next four years can bring. Forward to the systemic challenges that still stand in our path. Forever forward. Winning Wisconsin is a Wonder Media Network production. It's created by myself, Grace Lynch, and produced by myself and Maddie Foley. Jenny Kaplan is our executive producer. Dana Monroe contributed reporting to this episode. Special thanks to Jim Lynch, without whom I could not have made this show. For more from Wonder Media Network, you can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media. For more from me, you can follow me on Twitter at GraceLynch08. I've loved hearing from you guys so far. Thank you all again for listening. Bye.
1: I'm Amanda Lippman. I run an organization called Run For Something, I wrote a book called Run For Something, and now I host this show, also called Run For Something. My mission is simple, find people who care about solving problems and help them run for office. Every Tuesday, I'll talk with amazing and incredible candidates and elected officials who are already making a difference. They're in local offices that might seem small and not so sexy, but are actually hugely important for your day-to-day life. Fixing our broken system will take all of us and people like you. Listen in every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts.